we need to control the way that we communicate, most importantly. And whether you realize it or not, most people subconsciously see the tools in their lives, their communication tools, as an open door for the world to come in and grab them whenever they want. Whereas you need to shift that mindset to understand that these are all your tools to use the way you want to communicate with your world. So the big question is this, how do small business owners like us grow our business, grow our leadership and develop our teams in a way that allows us to get our products and services out of the world, yet still remain profitable? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Bradley Hamner, and this is the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Hey, before we get into today's episode, did you know that Club Capital is the largest accounting and advisory firm for insurance agency owners in the country, providing monthly accounting, CFO services, and tax preparation? Check them out at club.capital. Today on the Club Capital Leadership Podcast, we have Ari Mazel, the founder of Less Doing, where he helps other entrepreneurs, founders, and CEOs build a business that can run without them. As you'll hear in this podcast, Ari is actually my coach, so it's great to be able to have him introduced to all of you if you're not familiar with his frameworks and concepts. We touch on a lot of different topics. We touch on delegation, the right way and the wrong way to delegate. We talk about optimization, overwhelm. Where does it come from? How can we actually beat it? The right way to create systems and processes in our business, a better way to manage distractions, when to do the right things and the wrong things, and so many more. I'm really excited for you to be able to meet my coach, Ari Mizell. So without further ado, let's get into it. Wouldn't it be a great start to 2021 by having more leads in your book of business? Well, that's where our partners at Direct Clicks Inc. come in. Their team's dialed-in approach to running Google ads and online SEO campaigns maximize the quality and the volume of your leads, whether that's for inbound phone calls or even exclusive leads through your website. Direct Clicks Inc. works only with PNC insurance agency owners, so they have thousands of hours creating, A-B split testing, and improving online campaigns specifically for insurance. They also understand why each and every marketing dollar matters in providing true results, low paper clicks, transparency, and attention to detail, all of which is discussed in depth during your monthly review calls. Reach out to the DirectClicks team at directclicksinc.com. That's directclicksinc.com and find out how they can make a difference in your approach to generating new business. Ari, welcome to the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Brad. Great to see you. Good to see you. All right. So we always start with background and origin story. And your story has really attracted me, obviously. That's why, for those of you that don't know, Ari is my coach. Never trust a coach that does not have a coach. So your story is really fascinating. And so why don't you just take our listeners through kind of your story and the background behind Less Doing and OAF? Sure. Absolutely. So my background is in construction. That's what I was doing 15 years ago. I was working in construction, doing real estate development. And after several years on a project and living a very unhealthy lifestyle, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, which is a chronic inflammatory condition that affects the digestive tract. It's considered to be incurable. And I got really sick. I was putting a lot of meds. And the long story short is that I went from working 18 hour days to struggling to get an hour of work done in a given day. And that just wasn't going to do. I had to get stuff done in that time. And sometimes it wasn't even an hour. And there weren't systems out there that suited 
what I needed to do. So I created a new one, which was called Less Doing. The idea was less doing, more living. And I wanted to figure out how to optimize, automate, and outsource everything in my life in order to be more effective. And that turned into a international productivity system with multiple books, speaking on all sorts of stages, coaching, consulting to all sorts of different people. And over the years, it got applied and morphed into a more of a business-focused methodology now that I call the replaceable founder. And so what I do now is I help entrepreneurs become more replaceable in their businesses. And it's a lot of fun. So we're going to dive into just a lot of high-level topics in our time together. And so one that really obviously resonated with me was just your thought process behind overwhelm. And so I really thought this is going to sound so basic, but really kind of a two-part question. Why do we get overwhelmed? And where does overwhelm even originate from? It's a really great question, actually, because just asking that is kind of the first step for a lot of people who don't even recognize that they are overwhelmed, right? If you want to think of like the visual of being underwater, right? Drowning effectively. You're underwater. You can't see what's around you. You don't necessarily know what's happening. What's all you care about is getting some air. And I think that that's often what happens with business owners, with people in general, certainly with parents and things. The idea that you just need to push harder, right? You just need to try harder, work harder, sleep less, spend more time. Like you're just going to get through it. That's what you need. It's so ingrained in us as human beings. And it's very easy and very quick to fall into that pattern and then be completely unable to see your way out. And I always like that expression. You've heard me say it before, which is you can't read the label from inside the jar, right? And so a lot of overwhelm is going to sound like a very circular answer, but a lot of overwhelm comes from a lack of understanding where the overwhelm comes from, which again is why it's such a good thing that you're asking that question. So we get overwhelmed. At, that's why we get overwhelmed, right? as I said, because you just sort of fall into this pattern. You push harder. It's so much easier to try to fix a problem than to stop and come up with a solution. It takes a lot more work. It can be a lot more scary for some people. And there's a bigger chance for failure, I would say too. And Again, we don't like those things as human beings. So we'll stick with what we know. We'll get it done however we can, but then something else will come up in the way. And why do we get overwhelmed? Well, it's because most people don't have systems for the things that we do every single day. And we just assume that we know how to do them, like making decisions. Most people don't think about their ability to make decisions because you just do it all day long. But the funniest thing about that for me and I have a framework for making more effective decisions that I've applied to thousands of people at this point. The funniest thing about decision-making is that people tend to just assume that they're good at it. And if you really think about it, with the biggest decisions in your life, whether it was buying a home or marrying somebody or having children, I would be willing to bet that 99.99% of the people listening to this never sat down and made a pros and cons list of well, if we have kids, it'll be this. And if we don't, we'll do this. Actually, there's a really, really funny, true thing of Darwin. Darwin made a pros and cons list of getting married when he was considering doing it. And one of the cons was like less time to get things done, essentially. Like he's like, but a pro was nice person to have conversation with at night. So nobody does that, right? But that same person that didn't make that list will spend 20 minutes deciding what to watch on Netflix. That's a good point. And decisions are tiring. Decisions cause fatigue and they cause overwhelm. And we put ourselves into these situations all the time and we just go through it without a framework to fall back on. Most decisions don't require using your brain. I heard this before. It reminds me of, 
I don't know where I picked this up before, but it said we constantly are tightening lug nuts as opposed to trying to figure out how to keep lug nuts tight. I have never heard that. And that is so excellent. (laughs) And it's so true. And so often, especially insurance agents, you know this, you've worked in whether it's insurance or highly regulated industry. You and I have talked about this before. And so we feel like constant firefighters. Okay. Well, I mean, we're constantly having to put out fires. And then the default answer is, well, it's out of our control. It's out of our control. And so what we end up with is a day of just constantly putting out fires, issues with our team, issues with clients, issues with technology. And we never actually feel like we're getting any momentum in moving the businesses forward. And so basically what you're sharing is we have to first start in our mind, our mindset about how to think about the problems that we have, as opposed to how to be even more efficient at solving the problems. Am I right about that? Absolutely. hundred percent. And you mentioned the word firefighting, which is the key word. It's way sexier to firefight than it is to fireproof, but your business needs a fireproofer. It does not need a firefighter. We don't want to have to firefight, but at the same time, it actually fuels most people's ego. As much as a business owner might be like, oh, I, I don't want to be able to have to be stuck in the business. At some level, they love it when a client or an employee, sorry, when an employee like comes in and they're like, oh my God, it was a horrible thing happened with the client, need your help. And like, all right. And it's like, okay, I'll put on the Batman belt. No problem. Yeah. And I'll save the day. Superman. Uh, yeah, exactly. Superwoman. You, you hate it as much as you love it. And that's the problem. That's the quandary. It's so much less sexier to be like, oh yeah, that's not going to be a problem anymore because I spent a couple of days and figured out a solution. It's like, oh... I don't get to save the day this time. Okay. All right. It takes some getting used to. It does. And it's hard for people because again, it's less sexy. That's the thing. So it seems like the cat's out of the bag at this point with distractions, the number of inputs we have going in, because this is kind of really the next level of what we were just talking about of overwhelm, the number of interruptions we have, some of them are self-imposed with just notifications on our phone, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, the election, COVID numbers. I mean, it's just so much. We have so many inputs. How do we even begin to think about how to minimize the distractions that we have? And I'm not even necessarily talking about how many times we check email. We might get to that at some point today, but I just really would love to hear your thoughts because I think you have an incredible way, a unique way of thinking about distractions and interruptions in our lives. Yeah. So the first thing is I need to clarify something that you said, which is that you said some of those interactions, interruptions rather are self-imposed. Let's get this straight. All of them are Mm self-imposed. All interruptions are self-imposed because I personally know several very, very successful business people who don't own cell phones. They don't. And if you need to get to them urgently, you have to go through somebody else. And that person's going to decide if it's actually urgent or not. And if it is, they'll probably deal with it before it gets to that person anyway. Right. So they are all self-imposed. And this is somebody who has four small children in school And anytime a phone number comes up from one of the schools, I answer and I say, what's wrong? But there are systems that we can put in place. So there are no interruptions that are not self-imposed. Now, that doesn't mean that the world could collapse. That's not your fault. But the way that that comes to you is up to you. So that's the first thing. The second one is that you mentioned it also before about people saying it's out of my control. It's out of my control. Control is the antidote to stress. And yet we give it up so freely, so readily, and so regularly, and we become a passenger in our lives and our businesses. And I don't want anybody to read that as, oh, I should be a control freak, because that's 
actually kind of the same problem in some ways, which I could explain if you want. But we need to control the way that we communicate, most importantly. And whether you realize it or not, most people subconsciously see the tools in their lives, their communication tools, as an open door for the world to come in and grab them whatever they want. Whereas you need to shift that mindset to understand that these are all your tools to use the way you want to communicate with your world. I do want you to dive into that a little bit more about what you said. I mean, so just go deeper into that just a little bit. Like, what's the first step that we would have to begin to see control, but not being a control freak of having the antidote to stress? I mean, what's literally the first thing that we need to do practically to be able to say, because a lot of people may be listening to this and thinking that sounds great, but then what do I do with that? Yeah. So we actually have to look at the things that we're trying to control in the first place. And that might sound like a really simple answer, but the truth is that most people don't do it. Most of us are not aware of the things that are happening in our lives. I always used to give this example of when I was teaching in person and I'd say to somebody in the audience, you know, randomly, anybody know how many calories they consumed yesterday? And they're always like six people. They're like, oh yeah, I have it on my app here. I have 2000 calories. Today. It's like, okay, anybody know how many hours they slept last night? especially now, a ton of people raise their hands and people would tell me. And do you know how much money you spent last month? And people pull out their Mint app and stuff like that. It's like, okay, great. Now somebody tell me how many emails you sent last Tuesday Mm. and nobody could ever answer that, right? And it's like, well, that's silly. And I'm not saying that you need to know the number necessarily, but there's lots of things happening in your day-to-day life that you just don't make yourself aware of. Mm. And these are all things that we can track with free tools that we never have to even touch. Mm-hmm. to get those answers. And that data is ours. That mm-hmm. is data that we can do things with. So the thing about the control issue is so fascinating to me because first of all, as I said, control is the answer to stress. So absolutely, you need some sense of control in your life or you will be stressed. And the inbox is a perfect example of that. The inbox for most people, email inbox feels like a very out of control place. And gaining control over the inbox is really powerful. And I've seen this with a lot of people with their stress levels and their feelings of overwhelm. Same thing with the calendar. It's great on the one hand to allow someone to schedule time for you. But if you don't set the parameters around that, you don't control that, you're going to feel very out of control. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other end of that, as I said, being a control freak is kind of the same problem. Somebody who is a control freak feels out of control. That's why they're a control freak. They're grasping at control constantly, right? They can't give up that control because they don't trust other people to do things for them. They don't want to open the kimono and let somebody see that like they don't necessarily have all their stuff together. And so it's all psychology, like all of this productivity stuff. Yes, there's lots of tools. And you know, as much as anybody that I love technology, I love tools, the tools are not the solution. It's all about psychology. It comes down to how you approach the different things that you're doing. Are you an agency owner looking to grow your revenue and increase your bottom line? Club Capital is here to help. Built for agents by agents, so we know your struggles. With accounting, payroll, and HR solutions, tax services, analytics, and more, let's get you on the path to serious success. Using data-driven insights, you'll grow your business based on revenue and expense comparisons alongside your top performing peers. With over $100 million in tracked annual revenue and $70 million in tracked annual expenses, We have the data to help you make better informed decisions for your agency. Let's make your back office less of a hassle and more of the strategic generator that powers the growth to take your agency and your leadership to the next level. Visit club.capital today to book your complimentary 
no obligation demo. Club Capital, way more than a CPA firm. And so to answer your question more succinctly, you need to start identifying what's actually happening in your life so that you can effectively control it. And you can control the way that you give up control. Mm-hmm. Meaning you can communicate very effectively to people how things need to be done and in what parameters they have to do them rather than going through life and your business existing on the implicit. Mm. So that is actually, if I were going to give you one small answer or short answer, that would be the one is make the implicit explicit. Don't assume that people understand what your intentions are. Make sure that they actually get it. Make sure that they know what needs to get done to your satisfaction. Make sure that people know when and how to communicate with you about certain things and where you should be looking when you need an update on a project. Like you need to set these things out. You can't just assume. So we're going to talk about, I want to talk about inbox and maybe calendar, but I want to do it under the umbrella of delegation and proper delegation whenever we get to that point. But also earlier you were talking about awareness. And I think that that's a really nice segue into having an awareness of how we're processing things. And specifically, I want to talk about timing. So you and I have talked about this a lot. And I maybe three years ago was introduced to the idea that we have these energy rhythms throughout the day. And I don't even know where it came from, but these energy rhythms throughout the day and that we should be thinking about how our energy goes up and down throughout the day and what things we should be doing when. But you took it to a whole nother level. I mean, you had an app that was created around peak time and, and actually saying, what is the 90 minute window that we should be doing things? And you even specifically, maybe you can give some anecdotal evidence here about like, maybe you have an inspiration to do a blog post, but you'll do it at 930 or 10 o'clock at night because that's when it's best for you. So just talk about the power of timing. And it reminds me of, I don't know if you've read Daniel Pink's book, When. It's a little bit of that kind of concept. So just talk about timing and us having an awareness in our businesses of when we need to be doing things. Because what typically happens is we're accommodating everybody else. We're accommodating our teams, our customers, our vendors, and we're not doing anything based on an awareness of what we should be doing that's best for us. I'll start off by riffing on that for a second, because when we accommodate in general, what we're really doing is breaking with process. So we're changing our standards. That's what accommodating really is. And ultimately, that's going to cause problems, whether it's immediate or long-term, it will definitely cause problems. So peak time is a 90-minute period, roughly, in a day where you are two to 100 times more effective than any other time of the day. And in that context, more effective really means you're more able to easily drop into a flow state. And a flow state, for those who are not necessarily familiar, the most common experience in a flow state is what's called a dilation of time. Meaning if you've ever had an experience where you were like really sinking your teeth into some big project, writing, working, whatever it might be, and it felt like hours flew by in a matter of minutes, that's what's called a dilation of time. And you are more able to experience that when you're in a flow state. Conversely, time will slow down in situations of extreme stress or fear, like like a car accident. Anybody who's had the unfortunate experience of being in a car accident, you probably remember every microsecond of what happened. So that's also a dilation of time and it's a protective mechanism. So if you identify what your peak time is, and as you mentioned, I have this app, it's a free app, less doing peak time app that uses something called the CNS tap test to identify what that time is. And you find what it is and you protect that time, meaning you use it for your highest and best work, whatever that might be. It could be writing, it could be sales calls, it could be negotiations, whatever it might be. If you use it for that, activity, you will blow your productivity out of the water. And we know this from research, like this is a real thing. And then 
you can use that peak time as like an anchor to figure out the other times in the day for you to do other things really well and poorly. And as you mentioned, Brad, there's energy levels that go up and down, but it's not just energy. It's this sort of intersection between energy and focus, which are not the same thing, which is always amusing when you ask people, when I ask people, what do they think their peak time is? And a lot of people will often report that they believe their peak time is eight or nine in the morning. And the truth is, is that's probably coffee. And energy is not focus. It can certainly help in some cases, but if you're really honest with yourself and that caffeine kicks in, and of course, that's also very variable for different people. Like I'm a fast caffeine metabolizer. It doesn't really do much for me. But if you get that sort of buzz from caffeine and then you're really honest and say like, am I really focused right now? You're probably not at your highest level. And also peak time could be, I've seen five in the morning. I've seen 11 o'clock at night. I've seen two in the afternoon. You know, mine is 10 in the morning, generally between 10 and noon. And the most important thing about knowing when that is, besides the benefit that you'll get to your effectiveness is knowing when you shouldn't be doing certain things. So as you, again, alluded to the writing, I can't write before eight o'clock at night. It just doesn't come out of me. And what does come out of me is not very good. So it'd be really typical for me to wake up in the morning and be like, oh, I got to write this blog post today. Super important. Let me get right to it. And then I'll just ruin my day rather than saying like, I'm going to do other things. And at eight o'clock, I will attack this thing that I'm really well suited to do at eight o'clock at night. And I'm going to knock it out of the park. So it's basically almost the anti of the book, Eat That Frog, which was what's the hardest thing for you to do and do it first thing in the morning, right? And that sounds so aspirational. I think that is one of the worst pieces of advice that particular guru has ever given the world, honestly. And I've talked about this at length many times before. It's so anti what I think people actually should be doing. And not only that, it's extremely self-centered and ultimately self-sabotaging and not for the reason you're probably thinking. Anybody who's listening is probably thinking. So let's take my example of the writing, right? If that's the hardest task, it's the most important task. I got to get this blog post done. It's a pivotal blog post, part of our content marketing strategy. We need it done today. First of all, if we need it done today, and I know that I write at eight o'clock at night, I'm going to do it last night. But let's say today for the sake of it. And I get up and I'm like, all right, I'm ready. I have my coffee. I'm going to start writing this blog post. And then I'm like, eh, it's not coming out. Of me. Oh, I'm going to look at Facebook for a minute. Okay. Now oh, an email just came in about something with a customer. I'll answer that. All right. Now I'm going to try writing again. You know, and like two, three, four hours later, yeah. maybe I've written the blog post. It's terrible if it's gotten done at all. And that's bad enough. But what really makes it bad is let's say I have a team and that team needs me to do something for them in the morning so that they can do their work for the day. And I'm like, no, no, no. They said I should eat the frog. I'm going to focus on my hardest task first and get it done so that my day feels easier after that, which it won't. And the butterfly effect to the team is real bad. And that is a very insidious act of self-sabotage, if you ask me. And so, so anti. I didn't know we were going to get to this, but to that point, it was actually from you. You said bottlenecks are at the top. And one of the most important things that you do and that we should be thinking about is first thing in the morning, actually how to remove bottlenecks for our team, right? Right. So that is the prioritization that I teach. I tell people that you should prioritize the thing that people are waiting on you the most, which by the way, probably requires the absolute least effort on your part to be like, yeah, go with the red one or yeah, use this font on the website. It looks pretty, but then they can do what they need to do. And then ultimately the team moves forward and progress happens and you become the first domino 
not the bottleneck. I want to move into delegation because this gets into a little bit with inbox and admin assistance, et cetera. And so this actually came up yesterday with a coaching client. He was kind of reflecting back about the time that he had an admin assistant. And he basically was like, I think I need to do an admin assistant because I'm just doing so many detailed things that I just don't really want to do. And so there's a little bit of a delegation, but it's also kind of an entry into your OAO framework, right? And so you would say, wait, pump the brakes. You're not thinking about that the right way at all, because you're just going to delegate crap off of somebody else, whether it's your inbox, your calendar, et cetera. And that's not even whether or not the, we're not even talking about whether the VA is virtual, which is very common. You have a ton of experience with that. You've worked with probably what, hundreds of VAs at this point. Thousands, actually. Thousands. Okay. So, I mean, there's not a better person to ask this question about. So I want to talk about delegation and then you can give, I've actually had people ask me, what's better having somebody that's in my office at my insurance agency as my assistant or a virtual assistant. But first let's talk about delegation. Okay. Well, I'll try to make this succinct and then you can help me dig into whatever you want. So the OAO methodology, which is really what I started with, that was the initial framework of less doing was optimize, automate, outsource. And outsource is squarely at the end. And the way that most people outsource is that it is their initial knee-jerk reaction to anything that they don't want to do or don't know how to do. Oh, no, I don't, it's too hard. It's annoying. I'm going to give this to somebody else and they'll get it done for me. But the problem is that if you outsource an in, and outsourcing and delegation, we'll use interchangeably here because it's fine. If you outsource something that is inefficient, you're really magnifying the problem because what you're ultimately doing is you are giving something to somebody that is not properly fleshed out. So it's inefficient. They have less context just by definition, possibly less information and possibly less experience than you do with the thing. While at the same time in delegating it to them, you have magically in your mind decided that they should be delivering a result that is superior to the result that you were going to deliver yourself. So you're setting everybody up for failure, like automatically. And that's why I love when I give talks and I ask people, raise your hand if you've ever delegated something or outsourced something. And 50, 60, 70% of the audience raises their hands. And I say, now raise your hand if you've ever had a bad experience outsourcing something. And typically more people will raise their hands than had initially said that they delegated. It's like, right. So the big issue with delegation for many people is that they see it as a very binary activity. They feel like either they have to do everything or the other person has to do everything. And there's no in between and they don't necessarily know how to get from one to the other. So they kind of take this leap of faith and it's like, well, so-and-so told me that assistance are the way to go. And so here, you do this thing. And then the expectations are not managed. Communication is not done properly. And it just creates a mess. And then they never want to delegate it or outsource again, right? So it's like, it's a vicious cycle in many ways. So they have to start by optimizing first, right? So we need to look at what the actual problem is. What is the process? And you certainly can get help in doing that. But it's generally something that is easily done yourself. We have processes in business, and you know this very well being in the insurance business. There are processes that people are doing today that they were doing exactly the same way 20 years ago. And I guarantee you, and even if it's been three months, I guarantee you that there are elements of that process that probably don't have to happen ever again or don't really need to happen. There are elements that are duplicated. There are holes. There's all sorts of things. So we have to look at the process itself and try to make it as efficient as possible with the resources that we have in the process now. But then we need to look at automation because you can automate things now easier and cheaper and more effectively than ever before. And if you give something to a person to do that a computer should be doing, you are by definition dehumanizing them and they will not engage with that work. They will make mistakes. They will disappoint you and they will quit. 
at some point. So we need to automate whatever we can. And then, and only then, if there's something left over, which sometimes there isn't, that is when you look at getting a human being involved because then they can actually engage with the work and bring value to it and not get overwhelmed. And to put that all into one sentence that I've just said, basically, don't sweep the dirt under the rug because it doesn't make the problem go away. Mm. It just gets worse. Probably the most common process for handling inbox that every course over the last decade that I've been to, whether it was insurance specific or not, they will say, I check emails morning at noon and 15 minutes before I leave the office. And again, it sounds so aspirational and everybody goes back to their office and says, I'm going to be like so-and-so and and I'm going to check my emails three times a day or maybe twice a day, et cetera. And it's going to be this perfect system. And that works for two days. Okay. But your way of thinking about email management just in general, but it actually is a broader context. I mean, there's specifically with emails, but it's really a broader context, the way you think about other things, which really kind of is an anecdote to the OAO system. I'd love for you to just tell people just broad terms, how you think about email management. Yeah. So the first way I want to give a visual for people here is, right, I want you to think about an alcoholic and everybody knows an alcoholic, whether they realize it or not, everybody knows one. Do you think that it would be a good idea to tell an alcoholic, hey, this is the solution to your problem. You can only have a drink at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 5.45. Those are the only times you can have a drink. You'll be fine. In fact, I actually just read something in some news article the other day about some company that does email-free Fridays. I was like, are you kidding me? That sounds like so stressful because can you imagine the person who works at that company? They're like, I mean, I need to communicate with somebody about this thing. It's Friday, but I can't use email. Like, oh my God, I guess I have to wait till Monday. The weekend sucks now. Like that's again, that's the same alcoholic. And you say to the alcoholic, just lock up your liquor on Fridays. It'll be fine. So it's the exact same problem. It's not addressing the actual issue. So email management starts with not using email to begin with, because most companies, not most, I'm sorry, all companies should not be using email as an internal communication tool. Now, we understand that some companies are regulated, that they have to do it. And this still applies. But to the best of your abilities, email needs to be eliminated as a tool for internal communication, because email is a very transactional type of communication tool, meaning it's very ping-pongy, right? You think about the emails that you have with people. It's whether it's personal or not, it's hey, how are the kids? Oh, they're great. They're going to this school now. How are your kids? Well, they're like, you know, or I want to buy this thing from you. Okay, it's fifty thousand dollars. You want to buy it? Yes, I do. Okay, great. It's very back and forth. Internal conversation is much more conversational. And when you try to have a conversation in an email, you get 20 BCCs and forwards and email threads that nobody listens to anymore and gets drowned Yeah. So that's why we need tools like Slack or Voxer or WhatsApp or Teams or all these different things to use for a different type of communication. We don't want to have all our communication happening in email. That's the first thing. So if you start relying on different tools for different types of communication, you naturally start using less email. It just happens. And you also get to know that email is not the place you're going to go to to look for the important email from the boss, for example. That might become Slack. It gives you, again, that sort of sense of control. But now in the inbox itself, we need to be making more effective decisions. Mm -hmm. The email inbox is the bane of most people's existence. And whenever I ask people around the world, whenever I speak and I say, what's your biggest productivity challenge? Email is the number one thing that comes up hands down over and over and over by a factor of 10. And that is because email as it stands is a tool that nobody was ever taught how to use. Mm -hmm. They were just given it. 
and it's we never learned how to use it properly. It's misused as a tool, as I just alluded to there. You can't use that internally for communication. But more than that, on a psychological level, it is a unique situation in anybody's day where they are given the opportunity to make potentially thousands of decisions. And you don't see that anywhere else in your life. You might have to pick the white bread or the whole wheat in the morning or the jam or the gel, like whatever it might be. But you literally could make thousands of decisions in the inbox. And it is physically exhausting. It is overwhelming. And it feels very out of control, which is a trifecta for a disaster. So the inbox turned out to be a really good place to base my framework for decision making in general on because that's what this is. It's the three decisions. And the short treatment on that is that the three decisions that you should be able to make with the initial interaction with any decision you come across is to delete it. Or if it's not email, you know, you're saying no, deal with it, which could include delegating it or defer it to a time that you can more effectively deal with it, which may end up being your peak time or some other time. But those are the only three decisions you need. And that's the framework that you need to use, again, with your initial interaction with the decision. Because of course, you might have a complex decision like, do I get the jumbo loan or the IRA or the whatever? Although those wouldn't be in the same decision, but regardless, you get the point. But that's for another time. That's where you decide that you're going to deal with it then. As you and I are talking right here, right now, if I got a text message from my wife right now saying like, hey, what are we going to have for dinner? I would respond. If we were in an interview, I would respond and say like, oh, I'll tell you at three. Like I'd identify a time. I would forget about it for now. And she knows what's happening. And I know what I'm going to have to make a decision at that point. And I'm taking back that control while still making the thing happen that needs to happen. So that has had a profound impact in working with you. For me, I mean, I'm managing six different email accounts just because I have to because of the businesses I'm involved with. And that could get incredibly overwhelming, just the amount of inputs that were coming in. And so that process, you know, I was guilty of and still do day to day sometimes look at an email four, five, six times before then I decide to do something. But the number of times of dealing with that or doing that, I should say, looking at it has gone way down because I'll finally say, what do I really need to do with this email? I mean, I don't want to do it. It's a pain in the butt, but it's really going to take me about 10 minutes. I'll give an example. Specifically, my grandfather passed away a year ago and the attorney's office, I need to write about a $300 check to the attorney's office. Well, I need the estate account checks. And I've known that, that I need to cut a check for this invoice to the attorney's office. Well, I don't have account checks. So what was the next step I needed to do? I needed to contact the bank and say, hey, can you guys get me some checks for this account so I can cut this invoice? That's all I needed to do. But I looked at that email 24 times before I'd finally decided, what's the thing I need to do with this damn thing? And it was send my banker a text message. How long did it take me? A minute. And he said, hey, it'll be ready tomorrow. Come by and pick up some checks at the bank. But that's times that I have to check myself that I'm not even sometimes using that system. But anyway, that has been incredibly helpful for me in managing multiple emails. So I have to make sure before we get to Enon, I really want to talk about process creation workflows, systems, because as you said, in the insurance industry, there are so many things that are repetitive in nature. So what someone will do is they'll get really committed to, we are going to systematize and document everything in our office. And so they'll spend an incredible amount of time. They may even put it together in a nice three ring binder, bind it together, and then it goes on a shelf and nobody ever uses it anymore. So all of this incredible work to document their system just goes by the wayside. 
and things change. Systems that they use change within the company that they represent. They don't ever go back. And before you know it, all that time, all that effort was wasted. Not to mention, maybe even the way they went through documenting it wasn't even going to be sufficient. What are your thoughts about process creation? Yeah, so it's the final gate in some ways, I would say. It's the most important, ultimately, but you can't attack it until you deal with the other things first, the communication, the project management, in my opinion. And you have some very big companies, very, very big companies that do not have properly documented processes. And so I gave this one talk one time, and it was clear through my buildup that I was going to give somebody a hard time about not having good processes in place. And so I asked how many of you have well-documented processes, and a few people raised their hands. I was like, great. And they all look kind of smug. And I was like, now, honestly, it was funny. I forgot what this event was, but it was like a CEO and a COO in each of the case. There were like several pairs of CEOs and COOs. I said, now, the COO that is with you right now, do you feel confident that a majority of the people in your company know where those processes are? And they all said no. Mm-hmm. And the truth, the answer is it's probably in a binder on somebody's desk somewhere or in a shelf. And that shelf might be in public view and nobody wants to be that person that has to walk across the office and grab that book off the shelf and look up the thing. And they're not going to do it anyway. It just makes no sense. And it's also not the way people learn. Like we can't learn certain things from reading it in a manual. It's certainly good that the processes are there, but we need to have experiential learning in many cases. And I was actually just looking at a client the other day about this. It's a bank. And they had a whole manual in place for tellers to perform their duties as tellers. And I'm looking through it and I'm like, 80% of this stuff, it really is like 80-20, 80% of this stuff may come up once in a blue moon. And to have somebody go through this entire manual and train on all these methods and try to remember it is just unrealistic. They need the 20% of things that happen every single day on a day-to-day basis. And then they need to know that like when the random person comes in once a week and says, hey, I need to do an international wire that needs to be there tomorrow. How do I do that? That teller needs to be like, no problem. I can look right here and see the process very quickly because it's actually available to me in some sort of a system. And then they can do it effectively, right? And the thing is, is that writing processes that are static is not the same as creating processes that people can actually run. There's a big difference, right? So not to be platform specific or anything here, but these process street and sweet process and trainual and several of these really, really great tools. And they're all really good, honestly. All the three that I mentioned are all good. They just have different nuances. But it's one thing to document the process, but these things actually allow somebody to run through a live checklist if they need to. And not for nothing, but really experienced doctors and surgeons, really experienced commercial pilots use checklists Mm -hmm. because it's not that the company doesn't trust them. It's not that we want them doing minutia and stupid things. It's really that they shouldn't be using and wasting brain power that can ultimately lead to mistakes. You love tools and it's easy for me and a lot of people listening to this to chase after apps, tools, systems. And after working with you for however long now, What's interesting to me is you don't immediately default to a tool, an app or whatever. It's actually way more the mindset. So that's something that probably you get asked a lot about. People will say, hey, what tool for this? And what about this? And and you back up and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What, what are we even trying to use this tool to begin with? So process street, sweet process, trainual, you're right. They're all great tools. But that is not going to solve the problem unless you think about it a certain way first, right? 
Exactly. And I'm sorry, I didn't answer your initial question there is that how people document processes, which is generally done poorly. So a lot of times you'll have somebody with a lot of experience, which is a good thing in itself, but they will be the ones that document a process and they write down, this is how I do this and this and this and this. The thing is, is that there's a lot of blind spots there. And anybody who's done a process more than once generally has already developed some level of shortcut or what's known as a heuristic. And they will skip a step that the person learning it needs without realizing it because they don't need it to complete the process, right? right? So what we typically see is like, I'll show you the process. Now you go do the process and you get holes and you get mistakes and it doesn't ultimately create a truly optimized process. What I do is I sort of flip that on its head and I say, show somebody the process and then ask them to write the SOP of what they saw and then take what they wrote and give it to a third person and let them run through the process. It will never, ever work, ever. But what then happens is that person gets to step three where it says, once you're done with this step, hit the big red button. And they say, well, I don't see a big red button. And we go back to the person one and they say, oh, right, because I'm logged in as an admin. You're not. So we need to fix that in the process. Okay, great. We get down to step 17 and it says, open the payroll document for November. And that person says, where is it? I don't know where that document is. So then we're, oh, that's simple. Let's just switch it. So it's a link. So open this document with a link. And then at the end, it says, when you're done with this, give it to Jerry in accounting. And they say, who's Jerry? Jerry hasn't worked here in four months. Oh, right. Okay. And then they never use that process again. So we need to switch it from a absolute reference of a person to a relative reference of a role, right? It seems like a simple thing, but it really does make a difference. And then when you do that, you've created a process now that you've effectively shown somebody off the street could come in and run through effect and like actually make it work. And that's when you can really easily start to automate and then eventually outsource. But that, in my mind, is the right way to document a process in a way that susses out the shortcuts that are inherently going to be in a process that somebody would make themselves. I hope everybody listening to this really just takes, I mean, this entire podcast, but especially what he just said over the last couple of minutes, because it is so incredibly powerful because the way that most of us go through and documenting the step-by-step -step that we think is the right way to do things is actually filled with so many holes that people, like you said, the shortcuts, we just don't even realize how many shortcuts. And I know not for time today, but you've told the story about paying bills. And when you started out with, I don't know how many steps it was, and then there were all these holes in it. And then you were able to get it down to nine steps. And now you've had whatever, 30 VAs that are able to execute on that system because it got so well defined whenever you put it together. Ari, I just learned so much from you every time that we talk on Voxer or just listening to you and something like this. So I, I'm so grateful for your time. All right. You ready for the world famous E9 rapid fire questions? Let's do it. Last book you read? Recursion. It's a fiction book about the multiverse. Book that you would recommend the most to small business owners? Emergency by Neil Strauss. If there was a movie made about your life, who would you want to play in that movie and why? Oh, totally. Uh, Jason Statham. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> We're both bald and he's a badass. So, yeah. <laughs> you have automated. Like, I think you've told me before, you're like a power zapper. You've zapped more things than anybody. But what's the most unusual thing that you have automated or helped somebody automate? Oh, well, those are two very different things. The most unusual thing I've automated is allowing my wife to pay our babysitter by pressing on a light switch in our house. What? Yeah. <laughs> I've never known this. This is, okay, we're gonna have to talk offline for this one. <laughs>
Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> and the weirdest thing that I think of automated for somebody else, we might be getting into uh, privacy issues there. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> That's all right. We'll skip that one. What's your favorite tech tool that few people have heard of? Surprisingly, Voxer. I have to say, like very few people that I interact with regularly know what Voxer is, and it is the by far the most important tool in my arsenal that is responsible. That's where I do 97 or 8% of my communication. 100%. I mean, kudos to you. My entire life is on Voxer. You cannot communicate with me any other way except Voxer, generally. I, I talk to my mother and my wife on Voxer now. Yeah, it's incredible, for sure. Hopefully, we're going to be able to kind of get back to some semblance of normalcy. I know you don't travel as much as you used to, but if you were going to sit on a 10-hour flight, who would you like to sit next to and why? Dead or alive? Oh, dead or alive? Uh, Harry Houdini. Mm, that's a good one. Favorite place you've traveled to in the world? It's a toss-up between Japan. Well, sorry, specifically Hokkaido and Japan and Paris. Fill in the blank. 10 years ago, I had no idea this would be so hard. <laughs> My metabolism has finally started to slow down. <laughs> I used to be able to eat like 8,000 calories a day. Now I can't get away with that anymore. <laughs> so it is the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. What is the best piece of leadership advice you've ever received? So it's actually sales advice, but I have applied it to leadership as well. A mentor of mine would always say that people don't buy from you because they understand you. They buy from you because they feel understood. So I think as a leader, it's not necessarily that people have to understand what I want and my mission per se. It's oftentimes about me understanding them. Love that. Ari, this is great. Thank you so much for your time. If people want to get to know more about you, your work, and how you can be of help to them, what's the best place for them to reach out and connect with you? Oh, they can check out my brand spanking new website that came out this morning at lessdoing.com. Everything is there, the programs, the books, the podcast, the blog, it's all there at lessdoing.com. But also I have a free Facebook group, The Replaceable Founder, which I think is a really excellent resource for anybody. And they can join me there. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Ari. Every single time that I talk to him, whether it's mostly over Voxer, I just learned something new. And his ability to be able to communicate what sometimes is complex thoughts into very concise sentences is always impressive to me. There's several things that he mentioned, several of them I'm familiar with, but just a couple I want to point out. When he talks about control is the antidote to stress and then how he was able to obviously massage that to say it's not about being a control freak. I thought that was really important. I know a lot of you are going to really love his way to be able to handle emails. And if you actually do that, if you either delete it, deal with it or just defer it to later, literally snoozing it until a later time, you'll be able to process your emails so much more effective. That was big. And just the importance of removing roadblocks for our team members. You know, I think the word contrarian has been used quite a bit on this podcast. And Ari is definitely a contrarian with a lot of different things. But the way that he goes about saying different concepts and frameworks are things that I just really relate to. It was impossible for me to not check my emails 10 times a day. I tried to do it three or four times a day because that sounded like the right thing to do. But the reality was, is I was not fixing the problem. I was not looking for a solution. I was just trying to get better at it. And so when we talked about tightening lug nuts all the time, as opposed to building a system that keeps lug nuts tight, I thought that was important. The implicit 
and then explicit communication. So implicit versus explicit. So just being very clear. You know, I had a situation today that after we recorded the podcast and then I'm recording this intro and outro a little bit later with a situation that I thought I was clear, but I was definitely not clear. And it caused a frustration with a couple of additional people on one of my teams. And that really stuck with me because I was not clear in my communication. I did not say exactly what needed to be done by when, by who. And we're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes along the way. But if we have an awareness of that, that's what's important. All right. I want to give a shout out to our friends at Direct Clicks, Matt and Maddie Jones. And make sure, hey, have you downloaded that marketing ROI tool yet? If you haven't, do it. You're probably putting together your budgets and your forecast for 2021 if you've not already. You got to be able to make sure that your marketing is working for you. Download their free tool. It's in the show notes that we have, whether you're listening on Spotify, Google, Apple, or if you're getting our emails. And if you're not getting our emails, make sure you go to club.capital forward slash podcast, sign up for our email notification. So you'll be in the loop of exactly whenever a new episode is released. Look forward to our next episode. We appreciate your loyalty and listening to us. Let us know if there's a guest that you would love for us to interview, reach out to. You can always reach me at bradley at club.capital, bradley at club.capital. Look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, lead well. 